This is God's word. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me as we begin? Our great God, our Father in heaven, we come into this place from different uh, experiences, different journeys, uh, different levels of um, uh, comfort with the idea of uh, listening to the words of Jesus. And so there's all these different spectrums on which we find ourselves, whether it's the spectrum of belief and doubt or the spectrum of happiness and grief or the spectrum of um, orientation and disorientation, feeling like our life is healed or feeling like our life is a mess and broken. And yet we are all more broken than we care to admit. That's the truth underlying it today. And um, we find in the story of Scripture, the story of Jesus, that you move towards broken lives to unbreak things and to heal them. You chase us down when we're runaways and you call us home and invite us back graciously. This is the kind of grace that you come to the people in Scripture with. It's the kind of grace with which you come to us this morning. Please do so now. Speak to us with that kind of grace in a way that our lives might be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm excited to start a new sermon series for the fall because it's uh, very practical. It's a how-to series, right? Don't we love how-tos? How-to. The thing about how-to things in our culture is that if you go to the store and you find a book that says how to do something, Um, how to get better at something, how to find a job, how to be better at relationships, how to make friends. They tend to tell us what we're hoping to hear. They tend to tell us things that we expect. It's not usually a big surprise when you open up one of those books. um, And so you hear a lot of things that you would expect someone to say about how to do something. And then the issue, of course, comes in sort of the follow-through and the application and sticking in it. It's very different when you look at the Bible, the Christian faith, or the words of Jesus for how-to, as we look at how to be happier, how to have courage, how to um, deal with resentment. As we look at all these kinds of things over the next few weeks, you can pretty much expect that the way it works is that there's, there's something very contrary to our expectations. And part of hearing what the gospel and what the Christian faith says to us about how to live is, is that things are upturned. And it takes often a painful reorientation 
to enter into the Bible's way uh, of, of understanding life and how to live life and what the good life is. And so, you know, that's what we're going to look at today with the issue of happiness. And so we're going to look at the condition of happiness, the cause of happiness, and why this version of happiness that Jesus has is so good. Condition, cause, and why it's so good. Jesus is starting off here in, the, um, in what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount, and this little stretch at the beginning is called the Beatitudes that we just read. And I want to point out first the condition of happiness that Jesus talks about. Um, the reason I use the word condition is because it's not a momentary feeling. It's more of an identity shift in a longer-term condition of the person whose life is transformed um, as they become a Christian. So that potential transformation is a, is a shift of a condition, and it's more of an identity shift that has more of a permanence. That's the promise of the Christian gospel. And we look in our world, if you look around and consider the definition of happiness... Consider the, what happiness looks like. So if you, you look online, there's this new upstart company called uh, Happier. And you, so you can find it at happier.com. And you can download the app for your smartphone. And you can take a picture of something or just post words that basically you share your happy moment with the world. So, of course, I brought some examples. Um, Danielle is she shares this, getting my classroom organized, smiley face. Uh, Teresa, she says, spaghetti sauce made with tomatoes from my garden. See, just these little, little moments in the day. Uh, Carrie says, getting my new check card in the mail after losing it. Yes. I kind of like that one because it, it brings you into more than just that moment, kind of a story, right? Like you, you kind of, oh, okay, this fits in a, in a story of, a, of several days and the drama of that. And then Gary says, Unsolicited emails from clients that compliment my work. Double explanation point. Braden says, tipping our waitress $20 on a $34 bill or a check. That's pretty cool. And then Brittany says, 90s music. <laughs> Enough said, right? Any other? I can tell some of you with the 90s music. All right. It's interesting how, you know, I, I read that, you know, reading through that website and kind of scrolling, it's almost, it's almost kind of boring. It's almost just like these are, these are the normal little moments of life that are good, but I mean, you know, how, how many times can you read about someone enjoying their yoga class or enjoying their dog falling asleep next to them on the couch? I mean, you know, after a while, it's just like, okay. Um, but this is happy. These are happy moments of feeling. And when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's using a word that some people have translated happy, or oh, the happiness of the poor. And a lot of translations have veered away from saying happy there because it really does communicate something different than what in our culture we often deal with because we're dealing with moments or momentary feelings. With Jesus, this this is a big colossal shift that you can experience in your life or that the Christians should be able to experience. And it's not momentary, and it's not a feeling. It's such that the moments of happiness and sadness kind of bounce off it, and it remains unchanged. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's like a blessedness. It's like an ongoing, deep kind of happiness or joy, a changed status. 
that is promised to the Christian. And it's not describing as we go through these. We're, not, we're actually only going to hit the first two this week and next week, and then we're going to move on to some other how-to things. But you know, as you look at the Beatitudes, these, there's like nine of them. They're not nine different people. They're not blessed are these nine different types of people. They're blessed are one kind of person who's had this shift in their life. And here's expressions of it. Here's ways you see it. Here's ways you understand the change that's happened in someone's life, the deep blessing. So the condition of this happiness, but there's also a cause. Let's get into that. And by that, you, you kind of look at this phrase, poor in spirit, blessed. Oh, the happiness of the, of the poor in spirit. Looking into that phrase helps us get into what causes this kind of blessedness that's promised. The Greek word of the, that we translate as poor, for poor in spirit, if you look it up, it has these different connotations that you can find in a, in a Greek lexicon. Words come up like begging. Words come up like oppressed, uh, dependent, or in special need. Are you in special need? Are you dependent? I think where that message finds us, that message of a spiritual poverty, I think that finds us in a world where we love to be independent. It finds us and we kind of bristle a little bit because it says, begging? I'm supposed to sort of imagine myself, spiritually speaking, as a beggar? We in our culture say, that's the spirit. And usually that is an answer to when we see someone kind of bucking up with their own internal strength and saying, I'm going to give it another go. <laughs> and Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who, in a sense, spiritually speaking, instead of having this constant attitude of, I'll give it another go, there's rather a sort of self-awareness of, I'm not quite sure that I have what it takes. That's not very American, right? That's not very, very much like the self-made man that we're taught is the, the norm. And in so many ways, this verse is telling us to come to terms with your spiritual resource depletion. Have you, have you had a moment in life like that before? Have you, are you there now? Have you, have you run into your own spiritual depletion of resources? Kind of the way that someone might get a generator for when the electricity goes out, but eventually you know, you're, you're cognizant of the fuel's going to run out on the generator. Are you trying to self-generate the good life? your happiness. This verse says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I think the whole point, actually, not just of the Beatitudes, but of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, this is a famous section of the teaching of Jesus that Matthew records. The other Gospels don't record it at, this, at length like this. It's very famous. In fact, one uh, well-known Christian speaker who's asked to come and speak at conferences, his name's Shane Claiborne. I heard this story about him and never really looked it up. But the, the story goes that he walked up, you know, he's getting paid to be the key speaker, right? He, he, he walked up to the stage, this room filled with hundreds of people at like a minister's con- conference, and he opened his Bible, and he started with verse 1 of Matthew 5, and read through Sermon on the Mount, got through to, you know, Chapter 7, verse 29, and he closes his book 
and went and sat down. <laughs> Everyone just kind of like, he can do that, right? But that gives you a sense of what we're dealing with here. So it, it's key to s- s- try to figure out what, what is this Sermon on the Mount all about? And I think that the writer and the theologian John Stott gets it right when he says that really, and I'll put it in my terms, really the whole thing is actually about awareness and waking up to your spiritual resource depletion, your limitations. He says there can be no doubt that the Sermon on the Mount has on many people this effect. As they read it, it drives them to despair. They see in it an unattainable ideal. How can they develop this heart righteousness, turn the other cheek, love their enemies? It is impossible. And he says, exactly. Very interesting to think about it that way. As you look through the Sermon on the Mount, you find um, Jesus praising you when you're in, in an injustice situation and you sort of bear the burden and rejoice instead of you know standing up for yourself. He talks about how... Um, um, you know, the, the Old Testament talks about do not murder, but he, then, then Jesus says, we've got problems even if you get angry. And you kind of go, whoa, there's a high bar. It, you know, in the Old Testament, it talks about don't commit adultery. But if you've, you've committed lust in your mind, in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And you kind of go, oh my gosh. And he keeps going on and on. And he talks about praying for your enemies and never worrying about money and never worrying at all. And right in the middle of it, I think, is our cue. If this isn't all obvious enough that Jesus is trying more than to give you a list that you can take, go out and climb up the, the moral um, ladder to God, he's, he says right in the middle of chapter 5, um, he says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. As if, you know, neon sign, hello, this isn't just a nice easy list that everybody can do. Jesus' goal, I think, here and in so many other places as he teaches is to push you through the initial phase that we all have, the initial phase that we come to God with, that you might walk into church with, that you might come to the Bible with, that initial phase of give me the list, the same way you go to the self-help section, give me the list of how to, give me the list. And so he gives you this list (laughs) to kind of push you through that phase to where, where you say, whoa, Uh, I need something much deeper because I can't can't do that list. I can't generate my own spiritual goodness. I am spiritually impoverished. I need to be a dependent soul and I need to pursue something else, not my own righteousness, but how the Bible often talks about what we have through Jesus, a replacement righteousness. Righteousness. Um, the Sermon on the Mount ends with uh, there's a wise person and a foolish person and one has built their house on the sand and the other has built it on the rock. And so, of course, it, can, you know, it goes the way that would go and the one house is destroyed and the other is on the rock. I've often thought about, um, especially growing up and hearing that, most people, you think about, well, building it on the rock is doing all the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And I would, I would suggest that perhaps... If, if you were to ask Jesus, what is the rock? Like, what is that thing I need to do? And he would probably go back to the very beginning, to this first phrase of the Sermon on the Mount and say, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
that that becomes your rock. And why? It becomes your rock because if you, if you take a, a beautifully concise phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And he's not just talking, he's not talking about money there. He's talking about spiritual poverty. If you, if you become aware of your own spiritual poverty, of your own need, you suddenly can realize that Jesus, you don't need to be saved by the teachings that Jesus gives you to do. You need to be saved by the thing that Jesus did in your place. Where he had all the riches, the spiritual richness that deserved all the reward in the world and he let go of all of that and took on spiritual poverty so that you could receive what he started with. And so then you begin to understand the importance of this sort of scriptural message of kind of, let's wake up, let's see ourselves as we are. There's one point where it's pretty dramatic in the book of Revelation, which starts out with these few little messages from Jesus to these different churches and to the church of Laodicea. Jesus says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Quite a list. <laughs> and it's not talking about all of those things necessarily in, uh, in terms of money or physical health or actually being able to see, of course. They all mean this deeper inner spiritual need. And once you see that need, see we're talking about the cause the cause of this happiness and blessedness that Jesus talks about, once you can be spiritually poor in spirit, you can finally receive. You can finally know how much you need the grace of God. You can finally know how much you need God to, to do something on your behalf. And when you're open to that, and you've pushed through the independence and the list-making, and I'm going to make God happy, then finally, finally, you can enter into a whole new assurance, a whole new stability of character, a new condition on which you root your whole life. <laughs> condition of what Jesus does for you on the cross when he becomes poor so that you can become rich, spiritually speaking. You don't deserve it. Exactly. Um, many people I've experienced over the last six years of City Life Church um, happening is I see many people coming to City Life Church and they come in a time when they're in a place of depletion. And you might have been one of those people where City Life Church existed for you when you came to the end of your rope. And so then this message of you're more broken than you care to admit, but more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever imagined. Suddenly it became alive to you. Maybe you were coming for a stretch and you, and you just had never seen that. It never became personal and then you had that experience and then it all opened up. And I actually... You know, so some people came to City Life at the end of their rope. City Life, personally, brought me to the end of my rope so that I could learn that lesson. Because for me, because this is what pastors do, they make ministry their way of climbing up to their identity and their connection with God and their sense of assurance. And so, in many ways, the siren's, the siren's call for me of assurance was, ah, yes, if this, everything goes great with this church then you'll be okay and you'll be great and the world will be happy with you and God will be happy with you. 
And so in about, you know, you get a year and a half into starting a church and you realize my back's hurting from the Sunday morning carrying of signs and, you know, you know, you don't have enough volunteers and all this kind of stuff that's going on, not seeing as many people as I hoped there would be this far in. And you just kind of get to this point and I get to this low point where suddenly it was like, oh, that's what it's all about. And now suddenly it all opens up again. You, you read the Sermon on the Mount, and when you look at it through gospel eyes, you can't even see it the same anymore. Because you push through that phase of saying, give me a list. So the cause, the cause of the deep assurance, the deep happiness that comes from Jesus, is you're poor in spirit so you can receive the grace of God. Why is it so good? Last point. Why is this happiness so good? Um, if, you're, if you're going about life and you're not spir- admitting your spiritual poverty, you're not poor in spirit, there's a really big problem that might happen. You might actually end up getting what you want. And then that's all you have. You might end up getting satisfaction in your career. You might end up getting the nice, perfect family that looks perfect on the outside. You might end up getting the things you want or the stability of your bank account that you were striving after. All these things, these momentary uh, experiences or symbols of happiness. You might eventually get the kingdom of you. And Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want a short, very extremely, way too short version of what the kingdom of heaven is? In the Bible, it's not a place where God and his angels are, and someday you'll go there. The kingdom of heaven is God's presence. He's always invading this earth. So to be with God and to see God clearly is to be in heaven, is to have the kingdom of heaven. You see it, I could walk through scripture, but I'll save you of that. But you see it eventually as Jesus comes and invades. It's God's son coming and invading. The kingdom of heaven invading earth. And then when he he sort of seals the deal, when he dies, he rises again, ascends to the right hand of the Father, we say in the Apostles' Creed. So he's on a throne, now his kingdom established on earth. Um, And he sits on the throne. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's where God is. If you're poor in spirit, if you get to a place where you acknowledge your spiritual poverty, it's not, oh, I'm going to go to heaven someday. It's something that's actually already now possible. It's this new condition where you are more in touch with the presence of God, with what God is all about, with what God is doing, and he is at work in this world. A lot of people say, Jesus on the throne, where is that kingdom? I don't see, where's that playing out? Isn't there still so much brokenness? Isn't there just the same old problems? When the gospel unlocks your heart and when you see your need for the grace of God, you actually begin to see in this world this counter kingdom, this subversive kingdom at work. It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it's very alive and well. Uh, Let me close with this. What is it like to transition from our culture's view of happiness to uh, Jesus' view of happiness? Um, you've probably heard this phrase, the siren's call. You know, you hear the siren's call. And um, you p- maybe know some of the Greek mythology, right? And, and, uh, and you've heard about Ulysses and, and him 
being on the ship and you know you don't want to listen to the sirens call because it's actually not good for you but it sounds amazing so you've maybe heard this story that's why we use that phrase that way this is what one writer harry emerson fostick says i want you to think about the sirens call of the happiness that we are told to pursue in our culture he says that when ulysses passed the isle of the sirens he had himself tied to the mast and his ears stopped with wax that he might not hear the sirens singing. He says it's a picture of many a man's pitiful attempts after negative goodness. But when Orpheus, it's like the story actually goes on beyond Ulysses, when Orpheus passed the Isle of the Sirens, he sat on the deck indifferent, for he too was a musician and could make melody so much more beautiful than the sirens that their alluring songs were to him discords. That's the promise of Jesus. That's the deep happiness. That the waves of this world and the happiness that's promised bounce off against you, clearly inferior to what you found in the grace of God that heals you and brings you home. And as those sweet melodies of self-help bounce off you, they, they, they sound to you like the off-key sounds of a middle school band tuning their instruments. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear God, I pray that you um, help us to hear that we don't pursue our own righteousness and help us to pursue with our life a righteousness found only in Christ that has been awarded to us, given to us as an act of grace. Some of us... uh, we, life has stopped us in our tracks anyway, whether it's grief or unexpected turns of events or we're just exhausted. And we so badly hope and need this message to be true because we're at the end of our rope. Others of us just need to be woken up, need to stop running on the treadmill of religiosity or running on the treadmill of trying to find happiness the way the world around us does. Would you give us each what we need by the power of your Holy Spirit? As we approach also the table of the Lord's Supper, we ask you to be present and to fix into our lives the grace that you promised to us in these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.